Hi, and welcome to Levelized Podcast. I'm Morgan Kwan. And I'm Omar Wilkie, and we'll be your hosts. Now, Levelized isn't just another energy podcast. We're actually bringing you behind the scenes, behind the mountains of research that the Inverus Intelligence team publishes, giving you an opportunity to spend time with the passionate personalities involved in tackling the toughest questions in the energy space. Now, you might be wondering, who is Inveris? Well, we're an energy SaaS firm that's influencing some of the world's most important energy decisions. And we're doing this by connecting an industry through intelligence, research reports, data analytics, and smart network technologies. So we invite you to join us as we have fun, unscripted, and honest conversations tackling the most tough questions in this industry. Hey, Oma. Hey, Morgan. How's it going? Pretty good. So we're we're back uh, back to podcast number two. So I guess the first one went okay. Yeah, I guess we haven't been kicked off the show yet. So <laughs> try again. Uh, anything exciting in in your world the last couple of weeks? Oh Month? man. I guess what's anything hyping you up about energy? I mean, there's so much going on. I think I'm really excited about, I, I guess, watching, and I, I hate myself for bringing up COVID again, but watching um, at least some of the improvements in terms of what we're seeing um, globally, it makes you think that um, we're moving into the next phase. I mean, it feels like we're in the 12th inning of COVID at this point, but if we can get to the next phase, and then a lot of the questions that people have been wondering about the future of society, the future of energy, we're going to start to see how that all plays out. And so that's kind of cool to, to think about. Yeah, I, I think for me, what's been especially surprising the last couple of weeks, at least, is just the range in uh, sentiment uh, that energy and oil demand is recovering, um, especially with the, the new COVID cases happening in India and around the world, just the broad range of perspectives that um, people have on the, the macro thesis. So that uh, kind of brings me to, I guess, our topic of the day or of the episode. Um, it fits in quite well, just being the macro story itself. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's interesting because depending on who you talk to in the energy space, it could be some specific investor, it could be somebody working at one of the firms that help help procure energy for society. There's different views on what to do with macro. And then at the extreme, there's certainly people that think macro is irrelevant and your, your favorite stock analyst might just focus on security selection. And, and there's, I think there's good reasons to believe some of those things, but um, we personally love to talk macro. And it's actually one of the reasons we started this podcast. And, and, and really, the more we study energy at its core, it becomes really evident how integrated energy systems are. And with which things you're talking about, Morgan, and what we're seeing in the world, so many conversations are becoming increasingly interrelated. And it's so important to not be constrained by our own circles of competence, but to really invest in understanding the entire ecosystem. And, and what better way to do that than to start at the top and understand the interrelationships with everything. And, and then you can kind of think about what may happen in the next one to three to five years and even beyond. So yeah, it's an exciting time and, and I'm, I'm looking to dig into it. Yeah, so without further ado, let's introduce our, our guest for the podcast today. It's Inveris' chief economist, Judith. 
Uh, she has over 30 years of experience in the energy sector with a focus on energy market operations and regulation, transportation, and policy. Um, she's usually at the center of our internal debates amongst the analyst team when it comes to this macro topic, so definitely excited to have her on today. Uh, Judith specializes in energy commodity analysis and forecasting, uh, in-depth evaluations on market conditions and related impacts and issues. Uh, she's also, um, well, she's been with the firm formerly known as RS, R. Ross Smith since uh, November 2002, um, so quite some, some time here. Um, but prior to that, she was a senior vice president with the Canadian Energy Research Institute, where she directed research uh, program on domestic and international crude oil and conference and training divisions. Um, so quite a prolific uh, professional background. Um, but apart from that, she has a soft spot for pretty much all animals except for reptiles. Um, so maybe we can dig into that a little bit <laughs> later. Um, so welcome, Judith. Hi, you too. Glad to have you on and uh, bring your voice voice to the table. Uh, I know we definitely get, the analyst team definitely pulls a lot of value out of your, your perspective and analysis um, on our internal calls. So happy to, to have you on the podcast. Well, it's, it's a pleasure to be here and I hope I don't confuse you too much over the next 20 minutes or so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. And uh, we, we forgot to mention that Judith basically taught the entire analyst team everything they know about economics. Okay. So <laughs> figured we'd put her on the spot and, and, and get her out to everybody else. So, um, yeah, I guess we can kind of get started. Um, I, I think a great place to start, and we've talked a little bit about um, how your career has kind of woven you to this point, but um, for, for everyone listening, we just love you to walk us through sort of the highlights of, of your career. Why did you get into energy, and what have you kind of learned through, through your tenure? Okay, well... Uh... When I came back to Canada, I did my PhD in Australia, and my specialty was resource economics. My family was in Western Canada, and I didn't fancy myself among the lumberjacks or the fishing trawlers, so the oil and gas sector was it. Um, and as for highlights, probably the earliest highlight of my career was writing speeches for the Premier of Alberta, Peter Lougheed, and success of Alberta energy ministers. And at the time when I first joined, this was the Department of Energy in Edmonton. Alberta was negotiating an end to the National Energy Program. And this meant a return to market-based regulation of oil and natural gas production, trade flows, et cetera. And as an economist, getting to extol the merits of public you know, market-based decision-making was simply music to my ears, and it was coming out of the premiers or the energy minister's mouths. Um, another highlight earlier on was speaking at a meeting of senior officials in China and Beijing, and knowing that it was being televised to about a billion people. That was a pretty good audience. And obviously, uh, the highlight as well was being hired to Ross Smith Energy Group in the very early days of the company and subsequently having the privilege to work alongside some very smart and talented people. So until we've spoken in front of a billion people, we haven't really made it. <laughs> fair enough. With translation, of course. My Mandarin is, is not that great, particularly on technical subjects. What's, um, who's more difficult to work with, politicians or embarrassed analysts? 
Oh, gosh. I, I think I'd have to go into the witness protection program if I answer that. I think and various analysts are more fun to work with. Like with, the, with the politicians, again, they, you're sort of given the slant they want to take, and then you try to try to uh, give them something that you're not embarrassed to write, but they're quite happy to say. Um, I get looking back on, on your career, uh, or even... Maybe let's instead of looking back, let's look forward. So, which which global trends, uh, I guess today, do you think will have the biggest impact on the world's energy demands uh, in the next ten years? Let's say. Okay, um, that's a simple question, Morgan. It's but it's hard to answer <laughs> as usual. Um, but from from an economist perspective, obviously the you know first culprit number one is the rate of income growth in developing and emerging economies as as they come out from under the COVID cloud will be extremely important with respect to um, the rate of growth in primary energy demand, and so that's demand for not just oil and gas, but uh, for other sources of, of primary, other primary energy sources like wind and solar and hydro. Um, so that's in the medium to longer term income growth matters a lot because with income growth, it's, it's kind of a, a, a do loop. Greater energy consumption promotes more income growth. More income growth tends to result in more energy consumption. People join the middle class, they buy more stuff, their lifestyles improve. But against this backdrop, a high on the list of drivers of change over the medium to longer term, of, especially with respect to oil and natural gas, is that um, we're seeing consumer preferences shift towards less carbon intensive fuels, particularly in the transportation and power sectors. And, and this preference shift is being sort of aided and abetted, leading, if not following, accelerated momentum in government policy around the world, um, shifting economies away from fossil fuel use, particularly in the transportation and power sectors. That's an, it's a really interesting point you make there. I think the, the first piece on the income growth and um, I, I guess the, one of the more noble theses of, of providing energy is providing the means to, to try and lift people out of poverty. And in that case, if, if, if um, the developing world can grow their incomes um, and, and make life, I guess, less costly or, or simpler for everyone, that's really important. But um, you're right, at the same time, in order to do that, to create more energy for everyone, you have to create that energy to, to some degree sustainably. Um, and, and so I guess that's the, the interesting part to try and balance is how, how can you do that? Um, and then how do you accommodate that alongside all of the consumer preferences you've referenced? Mm -hmm. And so it, it does sound as if that um, both things are trying to happen at the same time. Yeah. And what's interesting this time around, and I'm really dating myself now, if you go back 250,000 years or so, <laughs> the, <laughs> when humankind remastered fire, that was uh, in prehistoric societies, that, that uh, sort of increased by an uh, order of magnitude, folks' ability to, to get things done in the course of their day. And then along came pack animals, and that provided um, another big uplift in um, available energy to get things done. It wasn't until water wheels then came around, you know, in, in medieval times, though, that we saw another sort of big leap in inanimate sources, common sources of energy that were adopted into widespread use. And then it took another 800 years into the Industrial Revolution 
um, before we saw the, the performance of these inanimate sources of energy again increase by another order of magnitude. And then the rate of change sped up. Um, and by the late you know, 1800s, the electricity system as we now know it was recognizable and crude oil began its rise to dominance. And the global economy today, fossil fuels really are the scaffolding that underpins it, but we're seeing a momentum towards replacing at least some of these fossil fuels um, accelerate for now. And, but it's not in the direction of more sort of concentrated sources of energy, such as we've seen in the last 250,000 years, but rather towards less dense sources of energy, such as solar and wind and hydro. So that's an interesting twist on a very long theme. But the theme of constant evolution and change, it's not new to the sector. It's just occasionally you'll see some you know, singular technological leap that changes um, the way we, you know, what we expect of the world and our ability to shape it. And at perhaps we're on the threshold of that now. Yeah, that's that's a really, really good point you make. And I think it actually ties into one of the themes we wanted to, to touch on too. You, you said you were d dating yourself, um, <laughs> hopefully not all the way back to 250,000 years. <laughs> Um, but um, I, I guess to in, uh, I'm I'm a millennial, and so um, I'll date myself a little bit here. I was kind of front row seat um, growing up into the peak oil narrative in the in the 2000s, and obviously five to ten years later, that's that <laughs> you can't find an article about that written anymore. And so as you kind of walked us through history, um, I, we wanted to check and say, okay, that that's it's it's so important to understand how things have evolved and what has happened. The question is what things thought that did people think would happen that aren't happening? And so yeah. I guess the root of it is there's always this hype or these big theses, like we're going to run out of oil and now it's like we have too much oil. And so we just kind of wanted you to walk through some of the more, um, I guess, extreme theses you've heard over time, just so mm -hmm. we have a bit more context to interpret yeah. the world today. Certainly, the that the world is running out of oil has been a more consistent theme than that we're running than we're running into it. The running into it part is is a relatively recent phenomenon. Um, the modern peak oil narrative really reared its head starting in the early 1970s when we had an oil embargo from OPEC. They used oil as a political tool against the West. Then there were disruptions in in physical supply related to Middle East wars. And that was combined with, we had escalating chants from the Malthusian crowd that the planet wasn't large enough to feed, clothe, and house everybody, given the current rate of production growth. So this scarcity of supply theme and has made an appearance at least once every decade since, um, except maybe in the last decade. And even then, I think there were, there were tweaks of it um, in the early part of the last decade. Um, and typically, the this theme has emerged whenever we've seen a cyclical crunch in the oil market and prices veering out of their normal range. And, and that's when lots of folks start tossing around terms like this is a new paradigm, rather than understanding that this is a cyclical disruption related to a you know, sudden disruption in supply or demand, and that short-run price elasticity of supply and demand means prices have to move a lot to clear the market. Um, there's tended to be a, a repeated confusion of cyclical supply crunches, at least over the last few decades, with the notion of scarcity, um, rather than understanding that you know it, it is a boom-bust industry. And as I said, when you've got um, 
pretty inelastic supply and demand in the short run. Prices have to move a lot to clear the market. So that's sort of the, the long-winded version of the peak oil hypothesis. Um, as an economist, it was always hard to buy into because you know, economists are fond of saying high prices have a sting in their tail, whether you're talking about oil or you know, coffee beans. Um, supply response to high prices and so is does demand. What the situation we're in now is is the world is the world oil market in particular is recovering from a natural disaster called COVID. We saw a record slump in demand last year, and we saw a record response from the OPEC Plus group to trim production and mop up on the supply side. And again, this was after repeated observations over many prior years that OPEC was dead. So obviously, again, it is not dead, and it probably won't be dead for a while. So now we're having demand recovering and renormalizing from these sort of you know near-term dislocations. But what's different this time around, as we sort of been chatting, is that um, there's a, a greater acknowledgement that the salad days for oil demand growth may be more limited because of the, sort of an accelerating shift in government policy off fossil fuels, particularly oil, and that's related to climate change concerns. And what's different this time around with this price slump and the recovery is that looking, you know, past, you know, the immediate near-term horizon is is the prospect of oil demand growth flowing down and possibly oil demand, you know, peaking. We think it, you know, could peak around the middle of the current decade um, because of accelerated momentum in government policy to get folks off oil, particularly in the transportation sector, but also and to get off gas in the power sector. That's different this time around. And what's also different this time around is producers seem to be taking to heart more closely the notion of capital discipline and not just growing like gangbusters, regardless of the return being made on all those you know, barrels that they're uh, shooting out into a market that may or may not want them indefinitely. Yeah, so it certainly sounds like we're in a period of of transition in the very least, but definitely a a shift in the industry is, is taking place, whether it's moving to um, more policy-driven carbon capture initiatives, um, or a more green energy transition, um, and just a more capital-disciplined approach to developing some of these assets. Right. I guess it's just mean, pulling on that yeah. thread a little bit, okay. um, kind of as you kind of close out the last weeks of your illustrious career, <laughs> like, are, do you feel like you're leaving the industry with it? Is it burdened with more complex problems than ever mm. before? Is it maybe it's too exciting to leave? I mean, it's <laughs> a new horizon it's approaching. I, yeah, just what, uh -huh. are, what are your thoughts? Well, I think, again, it goes back to the, so looking at the long, in the longer term sweep of history, occasionally, you know, you're on the cusp, you're on a threshold of a big change. And I think we've moved closer to that threshold, but just bear in mind, when EVs were first, you know, a glint in somebody's eye, this was decades ago, and it took decades for the technology to develop to the point where they are, you know, can be considered a a realistic and viable alternative to the in internal combustion engine. But that said, there are one and a half billion cars on the road currently. There are seven million battery electric vehicles. It's still going to take a long time to turn over that capital stock. And oil will still be in demand. Oil will still be needed. As I said, it is the um, scaffolding for the modern economy. And so far, 
we hadn't figured out a way to make plastic out of anything other than hydrocarbon feedstocks. So while it's true that maybe the movement towards this new future, the pace has picked up a bit, but I'm, I'm not sure that it's, it's maybe a fast gait. I'm not sure we're quite at a trot yet. Hopefully, I don't think it's going to take decades for, you know, EVs to become a much more, um, you know, popular and visible and making a greater inroads on future oil consumption. But again, these, these shifts take time. And in terms of, you know, is now a good time to leave or not? I, I noted with interest that when I started my career, the real oil price, you know, the price in today's, you know, real dollars was about the same as it is now. So from that perspective, if you just look solely at the price, you would you would conclude, well, the market hasn't really changed that much. But in fact, global liquids demand is 70% higher. It's, it's nearly 50 million barrels higher than it was when I started my career. Um, the OPEC share of the global market is 60% higher than it was. They've taken market as non-OPEC producers, particularly outside the U.S., have been able to keep up their pace. So lots there have been lots of moving parts underneath what looks like a stable price environment. And again, if you only look at the endpoints in price, the the flux in price in between at one year the price was uh, $20. Um, another year the average price was hundred dollars. The the volatility has been immense and, and that is going to still be the case because as I said, we've got these you know weird things called price elasticities of demand and supply. That means prices have to move a lot when you have short-term disruptions. And so far as I know, these short-term disruptions haven't been outlawed as yet. So I think I'm I'm leaving I'm leaving the field of play, and I think in as interesting position as it was when I came into it. And from the economics point of view, you know the the fundamental issues remain the same. The players may shift around on be shifting around on the board a little bit. Yeah, that's uh, it's it's so interesting because uh, I mean the root of a lot of what we've been asking here is um, effectively how not to be a prisoner of the moment. <laughs> um, and so we can look at today and say this is the most interesting time in energy and you're and you're right in the sense like it's we just came out of a natural disaster we've got these emerging technologies that are really attempting to decarbonize the system and there's a lot to be interested in but if you only focus on what's happened the last couple years you'll miss out to your point on all the machinations over the last mm -hmm. several decades and yeah. so I, I suppose the 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 last question from me is as we talk about you heading out and saying the industry is still as fun and complex as it was when you stepped in, um, what would you say to somebody who is starting a career in energy or is maybe a couple years in energy and they think about um, oil, gas, um, all of these new um, new energies, mm -hmm. how should one think about building a career in this space with all of the uncertainty that, that we're in today? Well, a starting point for building something is to have a good toolkit so having, having a good basic understanding of oil market fundamentals is helpful to, for understanding oil market behavior whether you're a geologist or an engineer or an economist you know operating within the context of that market or the gas market or the energy world more broadly um my prescriptions i guess more broadly whether you're starting in the energy sector or anywhere else would be to be prepared and to be curious and to read widely and to learn how to write and speak clearly and persuasively and be sure to ask yourself periodically, am I still enjoying what I'm doing? 
um, the fact that the energy, um, the plate of energy options seems to be, is broadening. I mean, the transportation sector and petrochemicals really the last bastion for oil demand on the planet. And transportation is now under threat. But again, it's going to take a while for significant inroads to be made by you know, substitute fuels. Um, and substitute technologies to the internal combustion engine. Petrochemicals may have, you know, a stronger toehold. But that said, um, be uh, do your do research, read a lot on energy topics that aren't directly in your, you know, appointed subject area, so you, you can understand how all the different parts kind of fit together. Because ultimately, energy is just a, a means of providing a service, whether it's for heat or light or our mode of power. Um, the current modern society is kind of fixated on certain energy types for doing a lot of that. But as we've been talking, the the landscape is starting to shift. It's not going to shift overnight, but it is shifting. So it would behoove anybody starting out to understand that at a minimum. And then think, you know, what particular aspect of that landscape are they particularly interested in that they want to make a go at um, for the longer term. I took notes. Did you? <laughs> yeah, don't do what I did. That's what we do. <laughs> um, no, very, very valid points, and I think a lot to learn from from you. So I think we're running out of time here, but one thing that we wanted to touch on is just the the broad range of opinions really um some opinions some more backed by analysis than others um but on the the whole macro story um as it sits today and and one thing that we like to to keep tabs on or whether it's for entertainment purposes or just see what the the average sentiment on the street is is just what things are being tweeted out and so i thought we could um maybe call out some of these tweets or and speak broadly to you know what some some people emphasize more than than others on in terms of the macro story. Um, so one thing that's been coming out a lot is just the whole recovery and demand. And so we saw one tweet, energy tidbits, or I should say, at energy tidbits, um, said, "Here's why oil markets believe a return to normal is coming in 2021, despite COVID breakouts in India and Brazil." Global vaccinations now average 18.3 million per day. Um, and then it, it points to a Bloomberg article uh, quoting that that vaccine rate. But do you, th I guess the question to you is, like, do you um, see demand coming back in 2021? Uh, is the vaccine rollout really the metric people should be looking at? Or just what are your mm -hmm. thoughts on the demand side of the equation? Okay, well, demand is actually quite well back. I mean, it's up 11 million barrels per day from its nadir last year. So demand recovery is already well underway. Um, what we're focusing on right now is, is what's going, you know, what might happen as vaccine programs disseminate. And obviously there's downside risk. We're seeing third and fourth waves, mutating strains, etc. And it, it's very important that vaccination programs um, stay ahead of the mutating strains and infection rates in order to give the global economy the momentum that it needs to spark oil demand growth. So I don't think there's a whole lot of disagreement that if vaccination programs continue apace 
and we don't have a refresh, you know, new round of lockdowns because of these mutant strains in important economies, then we see second half demand. We see a little surge in second half demand. Uh, we call it, you know, pent up demand getting unleashed. All these people, all of us who've been sitting at home all this time, get our vaccinations and we start, you know, running amok in the streets, driving our cars, traveling, etc. Service sector businesses can reopen and that in turn helps oil demand growth. Um, mm -hmm. But there's downside risks. There are potential heads, headwinds on demand, and, and you know it's something that we watch very carefully, looking at um, mobility indices, um, PMIs, all kinds of metrics that we follow to get a gauge on on near-term demand and where it might be headed. And then on on the flip side, there's some people tweeting about a supply shortage because of that surge in demand that's expected to come. Um, one quote was, we'll need all eight cylinders to get through 2022, uh, just in terms of everyone um, producing at, at max capacity. Another mm. tweet um, just around the Iranian um, barrels coming back online, uh, just saying that it's the, the last supply elephant in the room um, in terms of a supply overhang. Um, it, that the the markets will be able to absorb the, those additional barrels in yeah. that more more in the sense that you know supply is going to be challenged uh, in, uh, in the yeah. short term. Don't see that. I mean, the shut-in volumes by OPEC Plus are still substantial. They have nowhere near unrolled all of their production cuts. And as I mentioned, they had made record production cuts last year. So there's still lots of kindling on that pile to deploy if and when and they're already they're bringing back over two million barrels per day um, starting next month through July and, and we expect some more will be coming add to that you know one and a half or so million barrels per day from Iran over the next nine to 12 months and potentially you know maybe some growth out of the U.S. we don't see yeah. there's going to be a supply shortage anytime soon and if there is again High prices, response to high prices is more supply comes for it. And in the case of the OPEC plus group, and particularly the, the Gulf producers, they have idle capacity. And if prices get too frisky, they'll deploy it. Yeah, and, and I think one question, which we're not going to get into in this conversation, but a big question people have is just what US, US supply will do uh, and how quickly uh, they'll be able to respond to that. But that's a whole nother it sure is. <laughs> well, another topic that we will leave for another time. So I think um, that that probably concludes our questioning session for you. I don't know if Oma has anything. Yeah, no, I just wanted to say thank you for letting us interrogate you. Um, and more importantly, thank you for being a lighthouse to all of us. And, and to, I mean, over your illustrious career, speaking to so many people, helping influence um, the world of energy. Um, it's, it's, it's definitely inspirational for a lot of us coming into our careers to think about ways to follow in your footsteps in a lot of ways. So thank you and we're gonna miss you and we wish you all the absolute best in, in uh, your next chapter. I don't know if it's taboo to ask, but are there <laughs> plans on, on the horizon? Well, my husband and I and our little cat are moving to an island with an ocean view from our front window and the promise of year-round gardening as well as golfing. I plan to re-engage my love of literature and creative writing and 
hopefully hurt a few more cats along the way. It sounds perfect. <laughs> well, thank you for your kind words, Oma. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, thank and so I guess. Oh, yeah, go ahead, Maureen. No, I was just going to say thank you very much, and uh, I'll let you close it out, Oma. Yeah, we're just happy to have had this conversation. We're going to have a lot more on the horizon um, tackling these tough questions, um, and some of them will be more macro in nature. Others will be much more specific and, and, and timely, so um, we look forward to having those. But with that, we'll wrap it up for today, and we want to thank everyone for tuning in, and we will see you next time on Levelized. Inveris Intelligence Research Incorporated provides leading energy industry research and is a subsidiary of Inveris, the largest SaaS company in the world solely dedicated to the energy market. Therefore, any company mentioned in this podcast may be a subscriber or client of Inveris Intelligence Research, Inveris, or their affiliates. However, any views expressed in this podcast accurately reflect the speaker's personal views about any subject securities referenced. The information contained in this recording is provided for information purposes only and is not to be used or considered as investment advice or recommendation or offer to buy, hold, or sell any securities or other financial instruments. Please visit www.enveris.com disclosures for additional information.